This is the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. On this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Melik Ortabasi, Associate Professor and Director of the World Literature Program at Simon Fraser University. Dr. Ortabasi is the author of The Undiscovered Country, Text, Translation, and Modernity in the Work of Yanagita Kunio, published by Harvard University Asia Center in 2014. Dr. Ortabasi, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thanks for having me. Your research has looked at folklore studies, translation, and now children's literature in the Meiji period. So can you tell us a little bit about what's going on with these topics during the Meiji period? (laughs) Um, That's a good question. So yeah, what's going on? I probably should say a few words um, about my training and sort of what attracts my attention as a result, I guess. So I'm I think the only person you've interviewed who has a training in comparative literature. So I'm a Japanologist and with all degrees in comparative literature. So that sort of explains, I guess, the breadth of my interests, I guess. <laughs> and But I will say that all the things that you've mentioned that I have worked on and am working on, um, they're all connected in a way. So they do have something to do with each other. You pointed out that you're trained in comparative literature. Yes. And so if we're to look at, say, Meiji period literature from this comparative aspect, mm-hmm. how might it be different? Oh, I think it gives us a fuller understanding of it. One of the obvious things that anyone who studies the Meiji period knows is the prevalence of translation culture. And I mean, numerous Japanese literary scholars have commented on this. Basically, this it's a heightened period of international interaction in Japan, right? You have a huge influx of translations translated by Japanese people. And even somebody like Yanagida, who is very much, I mean, it's not quite fair to call him a traditionalist. He actually, if you go and look at his personal library, which is preserved at Seijo Daigaku, he has quite a collection of foreign books, whether in translation or in the original. And so I think this is something, you know, this is sort of a basic fact of, of the Meiji period that is quite different from the period before. Um, so from a different perspective, you know, so this is not something that I did in the Yanagita project, which is very sort of centered on his texts and the Japanese context. But my project now sort of looks at children's literature in Japan in comparison with children's literature elsewhere. And there, again, you can see a lot of commonalities that are fueled and informed by transnational communication in the form of translation, in the form of people exchanging ideas with each other, this sort of thing. Can you tell us a little bit more about Yanagito Kunio and some of the work that he's doing with folklore in the Meiji period? Okay, so if you look at Yanagita, he's born in 1875, dies in 1962. He saw a lot, needless to say. But given his birth date, he is not one of the founders, right? He's someone who comes of age at the end of the Meiji period, and he's sort of, he bursts onto the scene, I guess, with Tono Monogatari, Tales of Tono, in 1910. This is the first chapter in my book. It's an odd, small, short text 
sort of booklet size, I guess you could say. And it is a collection of anecdotes, tales, legends, and so forth from Tono in, you know, rural area, far north of Tokyo. And the format is a bit odd as well because he numbers the tales. You know, so it's not like a storybook. It's, you know, tales one, two, three, four, five. I think there are a total of 108 or something like that. The style is pseudo-classical. It's not the way a folklorist now would render uh, folk tales heard from an informant, right? You know, there's not really an effort to reproduce orality exactly, right? Even though he did have an informant from Tono who shared the tales with him. And basically what I argue in the book is that even though it is viewed as sort of a foundational folkloric text, it is as much a literary text um, written in response to um, literary trends of the time. Often in the Meiji period, when people talk about, say, folklore or the celebration of traditions, it's often seen as a kind of response to modernity and evocative of, of perhaps some ambivalence towards modernity. Do you think that's what's happening here with Yanagita or, or what is maybe behind this interest in folklore studies for him? Yeah, I mean, well, as you know, I'm sure um, Michael Foster and Gerald Fiegel have written, you know, very interesting books that are very much more centered on folklore and monsters and other superstitions that are, as you say, associated with sort of traditional styles of thinking, not associated with enlightenment and so forth. And I mean, this is again something, if you look at the wider field of folklore studies and the, the uptick in interest in folklore studies and modernity, uh, comparative perspective can really help you understand this, right? It's certainly not unique to Yanagida and his peers. And it is definitely informed by, I don't want to say, it's not something that really any of them want to reinstate. You know, I mean, it, they aren't saying we should all go back to believing in monsters. Right? I mean, it's not really that. But it is definitely a reaction to an anxiety about disappearing modes of thought and what else they might to have, have to offer. I mean, for example, Yanagida is nothing if not an enlightenment man. And uh, so he's very much involved in the nation building project. He's often talked about as a traditionalist, as someone who is looking back rather than forward, but I don't really think that's true. I think it's more fair to say that his interest in folklore, and not just folklore, um, certainly dialect, earlier ways of thinking, earlier political structures, social structures, this kind of thing, uh, he's, he was basically saying, no, we shouldn't just cast out everything old. We have a lot to learn from these things and they are part of our history. So why wouldn't we attempt to understand them and use what is good from them to move forward? place of folklore in Japan today? Is it still, or how well known is it? I saw that you had published this article on Heisei Tanuki Gasa, yes. for example, which I had to ask you about it because it's a great film that I show in class, but I think I probably show it in focusing on a, a different 
theme in the film. So I'm interested yeah. to hear your, how you're approaching this film. Yeah. Oh, well, I want to hear your perspective too, but sort of, okay, in honor of the late, great uh, Takahata Isao, right? Right, right. Just a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, it's, um, I think that in a certain sector of cultural production, folklore is very much alive and well. And it's interesting because I'll be going to a symposium um, that's being organized by Cody Poulton on the non-human. And well, you know, Tanuki are definitely non-human, right? I mean, it doesn't just apply to the post-human, right? When we talk about, you know, Evangelion or, you know, the variety of sort of post-apocalyptic, robotic, science fiction kinds of things. It also applies to animal life and the way humans and animals relate. And one of the things that I find compelling and continues to be compelling about folklore in Japan and elsewhere, I think, but maybe particularly in Japan, because there is such successful sort of cultural industry built up around it, is this idea that animals and folklore are really, in many ways, avatars for humans. And this is what I'll be talking about at the symposium. I, I, I mean, this is how the tanuki act in Pompoko, right? It certainly starts as a war between tanuki and humans. But when the tanuki at the end of the film, spoiler alert, sorry, you know, for the tanuki who decide at the end to integrate themselves into human society, they know how to recognize each other, right, by the shadows under their eyes, you know, when they get tired of pretending to be human, right? And they sort of quickly down a power drink and then, you know, they've got their power back again. Um, so at some point, you sort of have to ask the question where, are there tanuki among us? Right? <laughs> are they just, are they in constant bakeru mode? Are they constantly transforming themselves or have they just become humans? And I think this is sort of an interesting variation on the traditional uses of folklore, um, which are obviously connected with dealing with marginal others in society. Right? You know, how do you explain, for example, madness? It is often attributed to possession, right? Possession by an animal, possession by a demon, you know, this sort of thing. When, or how do you explain these people who go off in the shape of a fox, you know, looking for their spouse in the middle of the night? Um, you know, why have stories like that when you know that animals don't really do these things? They are connected to humans, and in many ways, the close connection that exists in folklore speaks to things about human nature and society that we're not comfortable talking about. And I think folklore continues to be useful in that way. When I show this in class, it's in the context of a lecture that I give on the construction state. Oh, yeah. And yeah. the environmental destruction yes. uh, of the Japanese countryside in the Absolutely. 70s and, and 80s. And so I, I focus especially on how the tanuki are kind of fighting back against the destruction of their natural environment. I, I think there's always this kind of environmental yeah, of theme or motif right. carried across uh, Ghibli's films. Mm -hmm. And another one that you've written about is Princess Mononoke. Absolutely. And I mean, I think, I guess what's sort of not unique to Ghibli, but they, they've done it particularly well, is this um, integrating of the environmental message with using, I guess, folkloric motifs. And I think that's definitely um, a theme that crops up in some of the work that has appeared post 311. 
And again, it offers an opportunity. If we talk about the death of animals, if we talk about the destruction of the environment, it's in some ways easier to talk about that than about the human cost or the, the political problems associated with the whole Fukushima debacle. So you mentioned that your current project is a comparative view of children's literature. Could you tell us more about that? Yeah, sure. So this is a pretty epic project. I mean, I figured I did my first book and it was Japan. And now is the time to uh, go big or go home. Um, you put my you know, comparative training and my other languages to use. And, you know, not just for the sake of it, but obviously because there is something to be gained by that. I think that basically the, the project is a comparative historiography of uh, children's literature and transnationalism, and I've chosen the dates 1870 to 1930. It is obviously not intended to cover everything. It is, um, I'm hoping to use the opportunity to pose some big questions and to offer some ways of thinking about the genre and the idea of world literature in a, in a particular way. So I'll be using, obviously, Japanese materials, uh, German materials, and English language materials. Those will be my primary sources with a few other things thrown in. And this project sort of came about as a result of, well, observing this translation culture that I mentioned earlier in Meiji. And the prevalence of Western literature that was being translated into Japanese at the time. And that literature um, includes children's literature. So you also have a lot of um, progress in terms of establishing a um, nationalized uh, school system, right? This is something that sort of takes off during Meiji. Um, I, mean, I mean, it doesn't stabilize until sometime later, but this is when this sort of thing is happening. You also have a lot of transnational conversations, even you know, looking from the Japanese perspective in terms of pedagogy, progressive pedagogy, child development. And then finally, you also have the genre itself, uh, quite possibly because of these other developments, developing in terms of style. If you look at stuff written for children sort of towards the beginning of Meiji, and then at the end, you will see a pretty drastic change. The change continues quite drastically well into Taisho. I mean, there's the old joke of, you know, the, the reality show. I think there was a reality show that's like, are you as smart as a fifth grader? You know, if I look at early Meiji ch texts that are intended for children, I'm like, okay, I'm not as smart as a Meiji fifth grader. <laughs> it's written in this very dense, either pseudo-classical style or kakikudashibun, you know, which is heavily, you know, kanbun based. And that changes quite radically by the end of the period. And into Taisho, where you have the introduction, for example, of um, school readers, you know, primers, that attempt to sort of grade or stage 
a child's um, acquisition of characters and of and reading skills. So you see that reflected in the stuff that's produced for children as well. I will add that the 1870 to 1930, the dates are very much informed by the idea of the Meiji Restoration. And as you, as you know, of course, um, German unification was sort of pronounced, declared in 1871. You don't want to leave out the, even though I don't do Italian, um, I am dealing with some popular Italian texts from this time for children. And um, there's the Italian Risorgimento, which was in 1870. And all of this sort of um, nation building, of course, leads to a heightened awareness of the child's role in that. It's sort of closely tied with um, pedagogy, with the education system and so forth. And um, the sort of burgeoning nationalism and internationalism is reflected in the kinds of things that authors of children's literature wrote for children. And surprisingly, if you look at the field of children's literature, most people who talk about you know internationalism and children's literature and so forth, talk about the post-World War II period when there was, in fact, a huge boom in, in that area. But if you look at the period just around the turn of the last century, there's actually a surprising amount of level of mobility by texts, by people, and by ideas. Since we were talking about how we use these films in classes, how is it that you approach the Meiji Restoration in class, and how do you teach about it to your students? Okay, well, um, first off, I just want to clarify that, you know, since I'm uh, teaching in a world literature program, which is, you know, very much a comparative literature kind of focused program, um, all of our courses are transnationally focused, so I don't often get to do, well, in fact, I never get to do a class in which content is focused exclusively on Japanese materials. So I'll, I'll talk a little bit about how I do incorporate the Meiji Restoration in, in, well, in one of the classes that I teach. Um, I also um, wanted to talk about whenever I do, I mean, I think I'm, I'm sure historians do this as well. And I mean, I'm a literary scholar, so I, I take probably a little bit of a different approach to teaching history or, you know, I usually teach it as context, right? Rather than material. But I find that a lot of the material comes in anyway, right? Because I have to explain how things are happening in the in the literature that we read that we read otherwise it makes absolutely no sense right especially if you don't have a background if the students don't have a background in any kind of um, Japanese history which they tend not to so I like to teach history as something that is relevant to us regardless of you know when it happened how far away it happened and so forth and um, I guess I I sort of take a page here from from Yanagida, oddly enough. He's he's an eccentric type, but he certainly had some good ideas about how history works. And he wasn't, as I mentioned before, somebody who just looks back to the past. He was somebody who 
was very interested in how history continues living today. So I would say that when I, when I look at the Meiji Restoration and I teach it in class, I try to teach it as this was people's lived experience at the time, right? So, but let me quote um, Yanagida first, because I think he has a really good way of, of putting it. And this is funny because it's from one of his children's books that he wrote after the war. Um, it's called Hinomukashi, so a history of fire. And he has something to say here. I mean, he's trying to speak to children. And he says, now let's think together about how historical changes happen. Generally, the world transforms itself in two ways. There are things that change all at once, at a specific time. There are also old things that become new at no determined point, gradually and without anyone really noticing. If I had to say, the second kind of change is much more common." End quote. So, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's simple, it's common sense, but I think it's something that we often forget about. And the thing about it is that with 2020 hindsight, we can of course see things in a longer flow of history and say, well, yeah, that was seminal or that was uh, a turning point. But there are also sort of things in people's lived experience every day that didn't change or that changed really slowly. And so what I tried to, I really tried to emphasize this to the students because I don't know if you've had this experience, but when I present them with Japanese materials and they have a limited knowledge of Japan, they tend to sort of get into this dualistic thinking where they say, okay, well, this is traditional and this is modern, right? And I mean, I think it's, it's something we want to get away from because we don't live life, you know, in our daily life, which occurs within the flow of history as, okay, well, this thing I'm doing now is old, but this thing I'm doing next is new. Um, so what I try to do is I have, I teach one class that's called East-West. That's just our calendar description for the course. And when I teach it, it's all about basically encounters between Japan and particularly North America. That's the, just the material that I've chosen to focus on. So obviously it deals with Orientalism and you could say the corresponding Occidentalism. And so I try to go out of my way. I, I do show them, I tell them to watch. It's it's classic, it's a little bit dated, dated but it's they do a very good, I think, the documentary about the Meiji Revolution as part of the Pacific Century series. It was PBS produced back in 92. <laughs> you can find it on YouTube, actually. But, you know, they Carol Gluck makes a starring appearance, actually. So experts in our field were consulted and they do a pretty good job of presenting you know the prior history and what happened during meiji uh, they tend to overemphasize i guess the rupture aspect <laughs> probably because that makes for better tv but i think that it provides a good background and then i go in we do some close reading of texts and then we start to deconstruct that idea of total rupture and what I do is um, the first couple of texts that I use in that class are both Meiji period, but they're not both from Japan. So I start with the Mikado, you know, Gilbert and Sullivan's uh, classic musical, which of course, you know, has its problems. Um, it was first performed in 1885, which I think is very interesting. 
Uh, so smack dab in the middle of um, all this stuff happening. And at one point, it was even banned in 1907, I think, when the imperial, I think it was the prince, came to visit. And they were worried. Uh, this was obviously after you know Japan's successes in its Asian wars, and they didn't want to risk offending Japan. So they thought, oh, you know, maybe we shouldn't put on the Mikado, <laughs> right? Um, and then I, I uh, sort of look at the obvious um, Orientalism of the piece, which is actually much more about England than it is about Japan um, in terms of its political commentary. And then I read that, I have them read the, um, the Four Immigrants manga by um, Henry right. Kiyama, which again, it's, um, it starts in the late Meiji period. So it's... Um, you know, a Japanese experience in San Francisco, 1904 to 1924. So you have these Japanese immigrants to San Francisco and their perceptions of what is weird and upside down about the U.S. of that period. And I think that it's sort of the idea there is to kind of say, look, everything is weird depending on what perspective you, you look at it from or, you know, things how you see things depend very much on your perspective. It's interesting how Yanagito poses that question about historical change, you know, as either as yeah. the sudden thing, which, you know, we could think of as rupture mm -hmm. or something that happens over time, maybe continuity. So because yeah. he's interested in folklore, we would assume that he would tend towards the continuity side of the Meiji Restoration. Does he Absolutely. ever talk about the Restoration specifically? You know, no, he doesn't. I mean, he's, yeah, he doesn't say, use the word restoration. Um, he, it's more that he's clearly, you know, in that quote, you kind of can see the anxiety, right? He is against rupture. He is for continuity. And um, what you generally see him saying is that people are forgetting things. People um, are purposely ignoring things. Things are getting paved over, so to speak. Um, and he sees a great danger in that. The Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.